There's still a whole lot of vulnerabilities that are taking place. And I think we have to still assume that most organizations at some point are going to be compromised. And now it's about how quickly you can respond rather than whether or not you're being compromised, how quickly you can contain and what your response actions are as soon as you detect something. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Thomas Kinsella, co-founder of Tynes, who is based in Ireland, if you can't already tell from your accent. So Thomas, thanks for joining. I'm really excited to have you here today. I actually really like what you guys are doing. And on that note, I think I saw something in the media yesterday that you guys did a major Series A or Series B capital raise. So well done. And it's good to see companies that are not necessarily perhaps in your your mainstream areas like United States really coming into the foreground. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be on. And thanks for uh, for highlighting the news. Yeah, it's a great, great piece of like news, great, great achievement for, for the company. We've been working really hard over the last 18 months, growing our customer base, improving the product, hiring a lot of people on the team. It's not, a, not an amazing environment out there for startups. So it's a real testament to some of the work that the team have been doing that we've managed to, to raise some money. But realistically, it's just exciting to you know, be able to get back and actually focus on making sure our customers are successful. But yeah, it's, we're delighted, delighted with the news. Well, well done. That's not an easy achievement, especially in this climate. So I want to start from your perspective when we caught up a few weeks ago, we spoke about the future of operations. So in respect to like your standard you know, active directory, on-prem and automation, talk to me a little bit more about this. What are your thoughts? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think it's probably important to baseline a little bit on where, where I think operations are at the moment and then talk about like the future of security operations. I think there's some challenges that security as an industry has had for the last couple of years that are still definitely true. So we're still facing a a huge shortage of security talent. There's still millions of jobs out there that are unfilled and a huge opportunity for anybody to, to get into the industry. And we need to do a lot better at that. We're still facing, you know, too many alerts. So the vast majority of security teams have a bunch of tools. Not all of them talk to each other. And they're facing a challenge of even when they turn on a, a good tool that it's hard to stay on top of all of the work. There's still a whole lot of vulnerabilities that are taking place. And I think we have to still assume that most organizations at some point are going to be compromised. And now it's about how quickly you can respond rather than whether or not you're being compromised, how quickly you can contain and what your response actions are as soon as you detect something. I think there's a few of the things that were like that are still definitely true as well. So I think most people are realizing that, you know, just looking at dashboards isn't security. But when we're thinking about the future, there's a whole lot of like paradigm changes that are that are taking place now and that have taken place over the last few years. First of all, a lot of companies are moving towards the cloud. So whether it's migrating on-prem assets into the cloud or like building a brand new company with a cloud-first strategy, I think spending on cloud security services is expected to increase like 30, 40% year over year, which is absolutely enormous. And most organizations, the vast majority are using cloud services, whether it's a Okta or whether it's like AWS. And I think in terms of the future, we're just not good at responding to those, those cloud security alerts just yet. So when I think about, I suppose, where security is going, I think we're continuing to get like more and more data. We're continuing to get like to deal with the challenges of not enough people. We're continuing to deal with some of the challenges of too many alerts. So I think we have to, I suppose, change the way we're approaching at approaching security. And the future is going to be like there's some certain things that are going to be non-negotiable. 
like first of all, every security team mm-hmm. is going to be a partner to the business. Things like two-factor authentication are going to be mandatory. Security awareness is always going to be there, et cetera. We absolutely have to uh, focus on the risk assessments. But I really think that security is going to move like, towards a much more operational model. So what I mean by that is that it's no longer possible to triage absolutely every single alert manually. We're moving away from a model where every single alert you know, goes into a ticket and then you can just you know, view it and then a human being says yes or no. I think you're going to have to correlate absolutely everything. So like data is already eating the world, but data is going to be where it's at. And then similarly, I think everything is going to be measurable. So as I said, moving to- more towards operations, it's no longer about, hey, did we detect this? It's going to be, there's a new vulnerability about the metrics are going to be how quickly you can respond, how quickly you can write a new detection, what percentage of your assets are going to be covered by that. And yeah, I think we're going to, we're going to see companies struggle to stay on top of some of these new paradigms. But there's a huge opportunity for, for people. There's a lot of really, really smart folks out there. It's just a challenge that we're going to have to face as an industry. So you raise a good point around cloud security alerts, and you say we're not really good at handling that. Why do you think that is? Is it because there's just so many that it's just infinite and we can't deal with it, or what, what's the reasoning? I don't think that it's, it's so many that we can't deal with it. I think that as an industry, there's been some organizations that have moved, uh, yeah, that have moved towards the cloud, but we just haven't developed that, I suppose, that shared knowledge of what best practice is. So if you go to a security conference, you can learn a lot about the latest attacks, the latest breaches. You'll read a ton and you'll hear a ton about the Atlas breach or the Uber breach. But what you won't hear a lot of is, I think, around some of the much more challenging parts of like securing your cloud environment. You'd much more likely to hear a, a talk or a presentation about here's how you secure your Active Directory, or here's how you secure your on-prem exchange, or here's the latest type of malware that's running PowerShell or something like that you're way less likely to hear a talk and way less likely to hear other folks talk about cloud security misconfigurations or talk about, hey, here's how we secure our S3 buckets in AWS. And I think people are very comfortable. People have trained, people have gotten degrees in forensics, degrees in like insecurity, and those haven't caught up. So people are still super familiar and super comfortable talking about those, I suppose, older style environments. And then I think we just haven't focused as, like, there's plenty of startups that are doing a great job, but we just haven't focused as much on saying, this is actually just as critical. The account, or the attack surface has expanded to the cloud because we don't have a lot of experts that have done it in two or three different companies. There's not that depth of experience where people are able to share their knowledge and kind of make it, make it more common, make it more, more accepted. The other part about it is, it is still very new. So I think... People don't have experience of dealing with every single type of alert as they would in kind of an old, an old environment. And there's not as much you know, training grounds where you can see exactly what an alert would look like. So with standard malware reverse engineering or something like that, or with threat intel, you can say, hey, have I seen this IP address? Or what would this alert look like if, or what would, this, what would a detection look like if I execute this malware on this particular device in this particular sandbox? Would my detections or would my team be able to pick this up? That's not the same, like there's no real sandboxes out there right now, which are saying, hey, your EC2 instance hasn't been secured properly or has misconfigured permissions, or maybe that, yeah, your disk hasn't been encrypted and therefore you've got some other risk. Or maybe you're like, yeah, your public storage or your, your storage buckets are public. You know, it's not something that people are training on. It's not something people are thinking about as much. You can accidentally reveal your entire AWS infrastructure by just leaving a key out there. And I think that's just not as much of a paradigm these days. Yeah, yeah that's fair. 
I understand what you're saying, and I guess it's going to be maturation of the industry until we have sort of stock standard ways of doing things or best practice. What do you think from your perspective and in your opinion on best practice? Like, do you have any sort of like, do you have a view on it or if to how to go about it at a high level? Yeah, I think like the, the very first thing, like as always, we should be like looking into our people. There are plenty of good tools and there's plenty of good courses, but we should be tra- like training, absolutely training up our team to say like, hey, this is how you do it. Or these are some courses or this is a, I suppose, a baseline of what we can do. There are actually great tools out there, both like public and public and private. But for a lot of these for AWS, for GCP, for Google Cloud Security, Posture, for AWS, we've got Guard Duty. You just should absolutely be turning these things on at a minimum, like when you're starting and absolutely observing those alerts. It's not so much making sure that everything is secure or detecting a breach. It's more at this point, like knowing a little bit more about your environment, poking around in it and seeing what sort of misconfigurations there are and making sure that your security team are aware of it and then they can push the information to the engineering team. So like if, again, if you've got, yeah, like if you don't have any, any logs stored for six months and an incident occurs, the same as in, in, a, in, a, in a standard, a standard kind of behind your firewall environment, you're not going to be able to detect anything or you're not going to be able to understand what happened. But right now, you need to know if somebody has stood up an incident or stood up like an EC2 instance that is misconfigured or somebody stood up a an S3 bucket that's public, or if, yeah, that, that bucket isn't encrypted. And the way you can do that is, like, there's a bunch of tools that you can just plug in and they'll start telling you about these misconfigurations instantly. Tools like, yeah, Lacework or Wiz or Orca will say, hey, we've detected, you know, some suspicious traffic to an IP address for the very first time, or somebody has logged into this device for the very first time. And at this point, I, I don't even, for a lot of security teams, I don't even think it's, like, detect, it's about, you know, detecting bad. It's about knowing what, a baseline is so that you can start understanding a little bit more about about that environment and then you can start you know th- those next steps i don't think auto remediation is something you should be immediately thinking about in security or in the cloud right now either but it is something that you can very much or like auto contacting or auto crediting tickets is definitely something that you can uh, you can do where you're contacting somebody and saying hey we noticed you just logged into this device for the very first time or we noticed um you know, an ad uh, like pseudo was run on this particular box for the very first time. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Was that deliberate? So I think the the first step is just yeah, trying to become a little bit more familiar with that environment, logging, turning on those really basic basic detections or basic tools so that you become more familiar with it, and then getting more comfortable with yeah, just contacting users and understanding and making sure that your I suppose your engineering team are yeah are comfortable with talking to you and know that you're know that you're detecting and know that you're able to able to help them when standing up some of these environments as well. So would you say, Thomas, that people out there don't know much or anything about their cloud environment? So, I mean, it's sort of me not knowing where the kitchen is in my in my apartment that I live here in. So I'm just curious to know why is that the case? Yeah, I think we've met in many ways. I, like, I wouldn't say there's plenty of organizations that are doing an extremely good job at securing this. And there's a whole lot of security companies who've raised funding and are doing a great job at, yeah, I suppose, enabling people to, to get a handle of their estate very, very quickly. And, you know, when you plug them in, turn them on, you're able to, like, your dashboard will light up with alerts. I think it's more, though, that, yeah, there are a whole lot of organizations that aren't considering it as a completely separate, separate attack surface and aren't as concerned, or maybe not as concerned, maybe aren't as aware that, that it's, it's just as vulnerable. I think t- to answer your question, though, I think there are probably a lot of organizations that 
don't have the barrier to entry to spinning up a new environment is very, very small. So you can, you know, anybody can go in and set up a sign up for an AWS account and start serving data. So that's exactly what it was designed for, right? So that somebody could get started really quickly. The challenge is that, you know, in this day and age when people are getting pressure from the business to move very fast, that you can move very fast. And whereas previously you'd have to stand up hardware in order to stand up a, a product or stand up a website or something like that. Nowadays, you can spin up an account, start serving data to customers immediately, and you haven't taken those steps to secure that. So I think the ability for anybody in the organization to stand up something really quickly without securing it is really hard. But the second part about it is because you're moving very quickly, you may not know about your estate. So we all know about you know shadow IT. Everybody has heard of that second Slack instance if you know, you're using Teams or the use of whatever DocuSign if you're using HelloSign or something like that because people think it's easier. It's the same in cloud, right? That people are prepared to stand up. They're completely separate environments that were originally test. They actually look great. All of a sudden that gets moved up. The discussions around securing that aren't, aren't happening. I think that's part of the whole shift left movement though. The whole shift left ideology that realistically security should be involved at the very start of pretty much every project that you need to understand how things are being set up. You need to understand how, like what your engineering teams or what your product team's plans are so that you can bake in those security controls and understand actually, you know, you shouldn't be setting this up or you need our help in setting this up or we need to lock it down or we've got a centralized account which has all these policies. So therefore, you know, you're automatically uh, not going to be able to make some of the mistakes that somebody else has made in the past. So if security get involved, you know, at the design stage, then making a lot more progress and you're shifting some of the problems from, you know, an incident to a simple design decision. When it's gone down the road of this environment's already stood up, it's already talking to customers and then you're told, oh, actually you need to, you know, change the architecture. Then you're in like, I'm not going to say massive trouble, but you're facing a much bigger, a much bigger challenge. Do you think as well, so hypothetically, I'm talking about shadow IT or just spinning up a uh, cloud environment, just say I'm working in an organization, I do something, I'm not supposed to do or I'm doing something that no one really knows about and then I leave and it's just sort of sitting there and no one knows about it. Do you find a lot of cases like that as well? Yeah, like uh, absolutely. And that again, that's shadow IT, but that happens in every sort of environment where, yeah, somebody has written a script, like unbeknownst to everybody else, it's supporting a lot of the company or a reasonably critical process, but it hasn't been you know checked into a Git repo. So it's not actually formally supported or formally scanned or nobody knows exactly what it's doing. Yeah, that definitely happens in the cloud where there's some organizations that have, yeah, spun up separate environments that are doing one or two things. I think that the examples that I've heard about and been involved in myself are things like, it's not important, it's non-core, it's only the marketing side. The marketing side isn't super important. Um, you know, if it gets compromised, there's not much customer data that's on there. But it turns out the marketing site's able to accept credit cards or it turns out that the marketing site, you know, is where people are redirected to after something's happened. So you've got, you know, referral logs and things like that. So there can be definitely instances where, yes, smaller projects that are stood up that seemingly don't matter as much, but that are actually yeah very critical to, uh, to the organization. And the other part about it is that, as you say, like that scope can increase, right? So it can just be originally set up as a small project. So nothing too important. You know, we don't need to go through the formal security process. Uh, and then all of a sudden it becomes a lot more important because at one point somebody needs to move very fast. And even though it was in that separate environment and it didn't follow our security controls, it was in 
DigitalOcean instead of AWS or Azure. And yeah, now all of a sudden it's being used for something a little bit more, more important. But yeah, we do see those, those environments get set up. Or yeah, test environments that contain real customer information when they shouldn't or they're left, they should be deleted and they're not. And you'll see the incidents that are related to that reasonably frequently as well. Again, I don't think there's anything malicious about what anybody's doing. I think it's just not good enough guidelines for, for organizations and security, unfortunately, not, not getting involved early enough in the process. So as a manager or an executive or someone listening to this and they're like, oh, you can't really physically have the control that you'd like over you know, all of your employees. You can't necessarily lock everything down or you don't have oversight into every single thing that they're downloading or that they're creating or that they're spinning up or you know, people have got BYODs now, they've got air-gapped machines, they're off-network potentially if they're doing like you know, red teaming and stuff like that. How do people sort of get some level of control? Because a lot of the time, which is what you've just sort of said, is it's not everyone's intention to, to have these things just sitting out there, but you know, people forget or people move on, people get fired. They don't know that they just had this test environment that's sitting out there with customer data in it. And all of a sudden we got a breach. How do people handle this? I've been at plenty of conferences recently where I'm talking to a whole lot of CISOs who have similar challenges. I think the answer, well, First of all, there's no, there's no easy answer, but I think the role of the CISO, the role of those managers or directors involves a lot more communication rather than building out the program. So it involves like partnering with the engineering team, partnering with the IT team and talking to them and, and building those relationships so that they feel comfortable coming to you. A lot of the time security is seen as the bad guy in the room, the bad cop, where we come and been involved in enough of these incidents when working in industry where we're like, what, what just happened? You know? We need to like lock this down immediately. Like, how is it possible that we allowed this to happen? Whereas, if we come instead with a little bit more, again, of an operational model of, hey, this happens and it's not good, but we know that this is going to happen. We know that this is not the first time. People are going to become a little bit more comfortable with talking about it and saying, actually, hey, you know, I need a little bit of help with this. So this is bad, but I'm okay with talking about it. So I think like building those relationships very early on, and if you bust them and that happens as well just reaching out and trying to improve them so that nobody feels bruised by their interactions with security i've had plenty of incidents where somebody reports a phishing email or somebody reports that they've clicked on a link uh, or that they've downloaded some software and oftentimes you're able to detect or you're able to lock that system down but what's really valuable about that is when as a next step you go and see did anybody else do something or did anybody else receive that same email and in plenty of occasions, you will see that other people have. So by encouraging and having an open and honest conversation with folks saying like, hey, it's okay, I want you to report. It's more valuable to me that you tell me that something has gone wrong or that you tell me that you suspect that something is not secure now, rather than me finding out about it in two months time or three months time when actually I find out about it on Twitter. So if you make it so that people feel comfortable talking to you, people feel comfortable disclosing things to you. And part of your job is cleaning up these environments, like saying, hey, it's okay, we can migrate this and there's not a turn this off immediately. We're going to like disrupt the business, but coming into it with a much more yeah, partnership attitude. You're going to find that people are reasonable as well. Nobody wants to be the reason for you know something bad happening to your organization. So as a result, I think pe people will be, in my experience, people will be a lot more open if security is a proper partner to the business concerned about not just their stress levels when an incident happens, but actually concerned about the top line with business reality. Would you say historically 
uh, security hasn't been, you know, looked upon as a partner. And I say this because I've been in that position before where everyone's like, oh, you're security, you're here to tell me what I can't do. And then I almost think that because, unfortunately, uh, people can go around and say, oh, well, you can't do that, Thomas. And then all of a sudden you end up doing it anyway. It's almost like when you're a teenager and your parents are like, no, you can't go to that party. And then you sneak out and then you go, right? Because you're like, well, stuff you, I'm doing it anyway. So do you think there's a little bit of that in there? Because they may be sick to death of people coming around, acting like the police, acting like they run the whole show. And then as a result, they feel angry and annoyed because you're holding up their project or whatever it is. And then they just end up doing what they want to do anyway. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. Like that. I think that's happened with like every security organization and it's really hard to change that because as a security professional when you see something going wrong or when an incident occurs you know the next week or two weeks or month is going to be really hard and it's not just hard on you it's hard on your team it's hard on your your peers and and on your reputation as well most security folks won't you know it won't affect them too badly but at the same time it's hard to see when that incident happens especially when there's an element of we knew this was going to happen but yeah, like if you approach somebody and you scold them, you're definitely not going to get the best response out of them. Instead, as you've identified, coming at it with saying like, actually, hey, here's a suggestion and then shifting left in that environment. So getting involved in that process earlier on and making sure that you're being very reasonable about it. Like at some point, ultimately, every single thing is a risk, but security is part of the business. It's a risk-based decision. At some point, somebody is going to say, you know what, we don't need two-factor authentication here because it's going to slow us down too much. Or maybe it's okay to take this small risk that something bad is going to happen here. Or we need to move really fast and we can secure something later. And that's okay as well. Security has to be comfortable with that. But if security comes in, if the team come in with an absolute attitude of saying no, yeah, you're just going to rub people up the wrong way. And yeah, it it doesn't help anybody. It just it burns those bridges and yeah, security doesn't come out looking better. In reality, you're going to be more secure if you come with that more collaborative attitude. And it's not to say that saying no isn't the right call in some circumstances. It's more to say that, yeah, if you want to build up those relationships, you have to come with a much more practical business first approach. So where do you think this scolding sort of business came from, this behavior? Why do you think people historically have gone around and scolded people? They're like, oh, you did that wrong time. Like, where does that come from? I think from a security point of view, it's a little bit born out of frustration, but it's also born out of the hope or the misguided hope that people will follow those rules if you tell them strictly, you absolutely have to do it this way. And yeah, from a security practitioner point of view, it is really hard when that incident happens. And if you know that something is going to go wrong or you predict that something's going to go wrong with a reasonable likelihood, you're going to freak out may not be the word, but you're going to like, it, you know that there's going to be some pain. So you're going to shout from the rooftops about it. But again, you have to overcome that and say, actually, you know, this is, uh, this is something that we're comfortable with bringing you to the table and like having a reasonable conversation and not telling you to do this. But rather, everybody realizing that everybody is on the same page. There's nobody that wants an organization to be breached. Everybody wants what's in the best interest of the company. So, yeah, I think if you look at, you know, security awareness training, it's really interesting when you look at some of the stats around those organizations that punish people for clicking on those links. First of all, people are going to click on links anyway. You know, at some point, people are going to make those mistakes. So being absolute about it, it doesn't help the situation where anybody who clicks on a link gets fined or anybody who clicks on a link is not eligible for a monthly or a, an annual bonus. I've heard of that happening in some extremely large organizations. 
but instead encouraging people to report, encouraging like gamifying and encouraging people to like, hey, this is the reason that we're doing this. I'm making it part of their role where they're thinking about security and then encouraging them, like highlighting the wins, not the reason we didn't get breached, but you know, we were able to prevent this as a result of this particular thing happening. So somebody patched and we've seen other organizations get compromised, highlighting that and saying, thank you so much for patching or thank you so much for reporting. Thank you so much for putting in place these policies. That's how you're going to win. That's how you're going to win friends and make sure that your organization stays secure. But I think scolding comes from frustration and probably comes from a little bit of fear of what's going to happen. So it's repeatedly saying, no, Joanne, you can't do that. No, Joanne, no, Joanne. And then eventually there's like, okay, then they start to get upset because it's like on the 20th time, I've told you, you can't do it that way because of these reasons. And this is what we're trying to do in terms of protecting the asset or the whatever it is, the company. And then eventually I think people start to lose maybe manners and they start to become impatient because they've gone over things so many times and people just aren't listening. Yeah. And saying instead like, hey, Joanne, talk to me a little bit more about what you're trying to achieve. What are you trying to do here? Like, what's your aim? What are you working on? And getting to her head and saying, okay, this is important. And we understand why you want to do this. We understand you're expecting this invoice and that's why you're clicking on this link or you're downloading this file or you're setting up this environment here's a way of doing this security and we can help you do that and we can train you to do that. It'll take more time in the short term because you're going to be spending time with Joanne. But in the long term, Joanne's going to think of security not as the bad guys, but rather as a partner and will hopefully then the next time she's standing up an environment or she's downloading something, think a little bit more about it and say, actually, maybe I should get in touch with security. But yeah, saying no to somebody, it doesn't endear you to them. So it's how we frame it, I would say. So maybe that's where people historically have gone wrong in the past of not actually framing like, hey, like, what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to do? Let me help you rather than like, no, you can't do that because no one enjoys that. Nope. Nobody enjoys it. Not even the security team, though. It's not a fun experience being on the other end either because you're rubbing people up the wrong way and they're not going to react positively. But there is nothing like the feeling of getting those detections or preventing innocent as a result of partnering. That's a great feeling. That's security analysts, security engineers. They feel emboldened when that happens, but they also feel it's a little bit of a security is a mission, right? You're never secure. You're only securing. And they feel when you get those wins, it's very rare you get those wins. But when you get those wins, it's a great feeling and it's a testament to the work that they're doing. So being able to showcase the wins, it's really important for the morale of the security team as well, that they're not just the defenders. It's really hard being on the defense all the time. It's really hard just trying to prevent If you're able to proactively take away some of the challenges of your team, and if you're able to proactively prevent those incidents or put in place better processes, you're going to feel like your job is a lot more worthwhile and that it's getting better. You're improving. You're actually making a more impactful risk reduction effort in your organization, which is great. That's what every security professional actually wants to do. They want to reduce that risk. They want to add value. They don't just want to say no. I don't think that's what anybody signs up to do. So if we zoom out, so we've spoken about the tools that you've mentioned before and and best practice. We've spoken about how to have the right conversations internally, like what to sort of start saying versus stop saying. And we spoke a little bit more about getting further alignment around security being in the conversation early. What other advice would you have as well if you want to sort of look at securing the cloud holistically? Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? I think it's like in terms of securing the cloud, yeah, but it's also just in terms of security more generally that it's a really hard environment right now to like hire and retain good people on the team. As I said, it's there's millions of security jobs out there where somebody can move to. So if you've got people that are like saying no all the time, if you've got people who are just detecting bad all the time, 
they're not necessarily growing in their career and they may very well just, you know, yeah, be overwhelmed and decide to move on to another organization. So I think we have to look at this like security programs and make sure that we're treating the teams and the individuals kind of correctly. And unfortunately, as you know, as we talked about before, a lot of analysts do get burned out. So I think it, there's a few different things that we can we can do about it. But it's when you look at when you ask them, and we've at times we've done some surveys around this, and plenty of other organizations have done some surveys as well. But I suppose part of the reason that people feel burned out is that they are dealing with a constant change in technologies and they are dealing with way too many alerts. So I think giving people a little bit more time where they're able to focus on the fun stuff, so focus on actually building new detections, so making detection and triage fun again, but also enabling them to yeah, automate some of their workloads where they are able to like, get away from that mundane response. That'll help your environment stay more secure, but it'll help the, the analysts and the engineers be more fulfilled in their jobs so that they'll stay, add value to the organization and they'll feel much more productive and they'll feel much more valued members of the team. Okay, I want to press on this a little bit more. I have been seeing things recently coming out around the fatigue, the burnout across any sort of security discipline. But you spoke before about like alert fatigue, for example, but then you also then spoke about the broader sort of the challenges on the burnout. So. If I'm a leader, what sort of conversations should I be having with, with my analysts, with my staff to ensure that, you know, they aren't leaving straight away? And I guess much to your point around the new technologies as well, actually, when I'm thinking about it, you said they're just sort of changing technologies all the time. Is that because they're getting a better tech or because they're swapping or they're adding things to their stack or why is that? Yeah, it can be a little bit of everything, right? So it can definitely be because they're getting better tech or it can be because they're suddenly setting up a cloud environment or the IT team have changed Okta to one login or something like that. Or from Teams to Slack or Salesforce to HubSpot. And now all of a sudden you're dealing with trying to build out new detections for those environments. But I think when we talk to security leaders and we ask them, like, hey, what do you think you should be doing? I think a lot of them are still focusing on the same metrics, right? So they're still focusing on mean time to response, mean time to remediate, mean time to investigate. But when you're trying to keep your team happy, it's not just about the number of alerts. You should be measuring team performance in terms of burnout, in terms of your employees' mental health as well. So like right now, not just for the employees, for you, if you've got one employee who's dealing with you know 20% of the alerts on a 10-person team, they're clearly doing way more, but also you've got a potential single point of failure there if they're responsible for a certain type of alert that they're the only person that knows about it. But more burnout so if somebody is not taking their time off if somebody is like working all hours so always working overtime or if they're taking on like more tickets than anybody else that's a leading indicator of churn so the first thing is measuring some of hey like who's doing most of the work the second is i suppose establishing a baseline of how many alerts are we able to actually deal with without our employees spending 100% of time on responding to alerts or spending 100% of their time on tasks that aren't necessarily as fulfilling. And then measuring the time off that they're taking, establishing like one-on-one rituals where you're checking in with them, making sure that they're doing okay, making sure that they feel supported. And then when you establish that baseline, you can improve on it. I think the second thing that you have to do is you have to make the security team feel the fun. And some of that is that win where we were talking earlier with Joanne that like saying no to Joanne is not great. That's not a good experience. But saying yes to Joanne saying like, hey, this is fab. And Joanne has come to you and proactively asked about something like celebrating things like that. 
or making the triage process of this alert has come in. Let's see if we can figure out what mass spam campaign this phishing email corresponded to, or let's see if we can figure out more detections for this, or let's see if we can basically allow them to have more creative, high impact fun while working on those projects. Not always possible, definitely something that's done, but I think you need to like design your team, design your tools, design your processes around minimizing that bad aspect of that repetitive manual work and more on maximizing the great, that creative kind of high impact fun work. And again, security automation can definitely play a part of that because you're allowing the analyst who's fed up of that process, but who knows that process cold to get rid of it and allow them to focus on that much more fun aspect. So would you say with the alert fatigue from an analyst perspective, because they are fatigued, perhaps they're missing things or things are going by the wayside or there's gaps because they sort of just, you know, they're so used to it or they're seeing things all the time. Like it's sort of like if you're driving and they always say like you've got to stop every few hours because you're, you're tired and you're fatigued, right? And that's how people end up having car accidents and dying because they're just that tired that they, it's just sometimes that they're, their brain just isn't focused on potentially there being a risk in front of them or they fall asleep at the wheel or something like that. So it's like the same type of fatigue and, and risk is, I mean, no one's dying from things, I hope, but it's the same type of, I guess, cognitive ability towards the fatigue side of things. Yeah, definitely. And it, like it comes out in a few different ways. So obviously, yeah, as you said, it could just be that they don't recognize, like you use pseudo in this particular situation for the first time like that's not particularly unusual that it's an engineer so i'm absolutely fine but then all of a sudden we see steve do it and steve works in customer support it's probably a little bit more unusual that they've used PowerShell or they've run something suspicious so it's being able to gather that context or understand that context in your head is really important for that analyst and if they're burned out then it's going to be hard to do that but the second part about it is that and you're kind of making the point as to driving that you know, when you're driving, you're using that second half of your brain. I think you usually don't make mistakes, but when you're tired, you definitely do, right? And it could just be that you typo something or you don't check that IP address or you just miss those two or three steps in the process that are actually really critical because you've got too many other alerts to deal with. So if you've done five or 10 different things, that context switching is always really hard. And humans are not great at just following that process time over time, over time, over time, over again. They'll try to find some optimizations, but they'll also like try to notice those patterns, even if they don't exist or hopefully they do exist. But I think that when you have analysts that are burnt out, they're going to miss things. It's really put the blame on the analyst saying, I can't believe they didn't recognize this. But if an analyst doesn't recognize something or missed something in the process, it's because they're tired or because the process should be automated or because they haven't been trained properly or they just don't have enough time and they say actually you know it's very likely this is a false positive i've seen this alert 20 times but sometimes you've got alerts that are designed to only be true positives five percent of the time somebody logging in from a suspicious ip address in the middle east somewhere if the company's based in australia like it's very unlikely that if that happens, it's not just somebody either traveling through or on holidays in the Middle East, but one in 10, one in 20, one in 100 times, that is bad. And as a result, it's the analyst may close that being, ah, look, yeah, I'm way too many alerts. Likely that's a false positive. Whereas in reality, you should be following that process, contacting the user saying, hey, do you recognize this activity? 
were you on holidays? You know, is that person on PTO in like in your HR system? That alert fatigue is when those alerts start getting missed. And that's when that breach can happen, unfortunately. Wow. Okay. So you've so we've started off with uh, talking about cloud, and then we've sort of moved over to the analyst side of things. So alert fatigue, of course, changing multiple technologies and systems. Yes, I find that annoying and overwhelming myself. You got to learn a whole new system, which of course is takes extra time to do things. And then when people are tired and they are fatigued, they they miss things. And then when they miss things, we have errors, and then we have errors, we have breaches. Yeah. Exactly. There's a whole lot of ways that you can solve those challenges, but it's up to security leaders to enable their team and to make sure that they're doing work that they feel valued for and that they're able to learn on the job, that they're able to grow on the job. And fortunately, really smart security leaders that are doing this and we can learn from that are doing it the right way and that are measuring the right things. So there's a lot of really good folks that are doing it. And I think belatedly, there has been a huge focus on it, which is great to see. So in terms of measuring the right things, what are those things people should be measuring from your perspective? I guess it depends on what uh, exactly what we're trying to accomplish. So I think when we're talking about the analyst and like what they're doing, there's a few different things that you can be measuring. So like obviously you should be measuring your mean time to detect, mean time to respond. You should be measuring things like how much time my analysts are taking. Are there too many analysts? Are there too many alerts that are being like act by a particular analyst or by a particular engineer. Same, you should hopefully have a reasonable idea of your bridge and your data feed health. You know, am I still receiving detections? Am I still like, receiving logs for this particular log source? Are my detections still working? You know, testing out your detections. But those metrics don't actually tell us if we're maturing and improving our security posture, I don't think. So I think we should also be measuring a whole load of other things around how useful are these detections or how useful are each author's detections? You know, obviously things standard enough, like how effective is our patching? What percentage of our bugs are actually known, but bugs are actually patched. But the things that I'd really be focusing on, and I think you have to be thinking about, is your speed to respond to those new attacks. So we've seen like a brand new exchange vulnerabilities come out recently. Now that should be reasonably easy to say like, hey, are we vulnerable to this? But the question is like, hey, are we vulnerable? And if we imagine that, maybe that's not quite exchange, but like how fruitful or how quickly we can analyze our environment, compile that like vulnerability and risk status, and then share it and understand, hey, how are we actually affected? And then the next question is how quickly in our environment can we build a new detection for that? So, you know, mean time to detect, mean time to respond, that's fab. But the real question is when something comes along, how quickly can I accurately tell if I'm going to be affected? And then if I am going to be affected, how quick, or even if I'm not, how quickly can I build out a detection for that? There are two things that every CISO should know about. If we're moving fast and we're talking about earlier, kind of bringing it back, we detect that there is somebody is using a separate AWS instance or somebody, I don't know why they do this, but plenty of people do a separate Slack account for communications. The question is, like, how quickly can you add a new log source to your environment? And then same other things like, hey, you get new detections or a new report of the IOCs that were involved in that Optus breach, for example. How quickly can we sweep our entire environment to see have we been infected by this across like our workstations, across our servers, across our cloud environment? I think those are the metrics that if I'm trying to measure the success of my program, that I'd be really focused on trying to get a handle of. 
And then if you're being able to break it down even further by going into things for each domain or those exact same statistics, but for my front-facing assets or my DMZ or my crown jewels, et cetera, we have a lot of reasonable metrics, but you really want to know how quickly you can respond and how quickly your team can respond and how effective your team are able to operate when something goes right or something goes wrong. So in terms of final thoughts or closing comments, do you have any sort of to share with our audience today? Thomas, I think you've been quite detailed in your response. I think we've looked at multiple angles as well, not just necessarily focusing on the technology itself, but also the behaviors in which people can start changing internally as well from a leadership perspective, but also as an employee level as well. And how we speak across our business. Is there anything, anything you'd like to leave our audience with today? The only thing I'll say is that there's a lot of people that are doing a great job and I'll come on and I'll say, hey, here's what you should be doing. And just be a little bit wary of, not necessarily folks like me, but I suppose the kind of security Instagram influencer effect of, you'll hear a lot of people that are claiming to have these incredible detections or claiming that they're doing everything perfectly. It's not always the case. and there's no such thing as a silver bullet, but there's a lot of people that don't have an incredible security program and are just getting started. And that's okay. You are where you are. The whole point is the fact that you're listening to this podcast is absolutely fab, but you can just take those first steps. And those first steps are going to be building those relationships with your peers in other parts of the business. And then looking at your team and saying like, hey, how are they doing? How am I able to get the best use out of them? But don't be like put off by saying, I'm so far behind. In many ways, there's plenty of organizations that claim to be doing an incredible job that aren't or that are showcasing the absolute best as most people on Instagram do. And just don't be afraid. It's okay. There's plenty of organizations out there. The security community is absolutely fab. If you want to reach out to me and have a chat about like security automation, we're more than happy to have that conversation. But also, there's a really good community and a lot of people will have your back if you approach them and yeah, are, are honest about, about the situation. The, the final thought is, even though I've shared a lot of, I, I hope not too scary things, but a lot of challenges that people are facing, there's a really positive future and there's great people in the security industry who are dealing with these challenges and helping people face them. Well, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, as they say. So thanks very much, Thomas. Thanks very much for your time, for sharing your thoughts and your insights and can't wait to get you back on the show. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.